Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. In the beginning, there was the word. Okay, lots of words. A screenplay. Though directors are better known than screenwriters in the world of filmmaking, particularly genre filmmaking, you can't make a good movie from a bad script. The importance of the screenwriter and the foundation of story and plot and characters who resonate and ring true cannot be overstated. I started writing short stories at the age of 12, moved into music journalism in high school, film journalism in college, and after 20 years at a keyboard, started to make my living as a screenwriter on Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories TV series. A year later, I got my first chance to direct on the Disney Sunday movie called Fuzzbucket, which I also wrote. Though the horror genre is filled with directors who also write, John Carpenter, David Cronenberg, Wes Craven, Eli Roth, Rob Zombie, Jordan Peele, and many others spring to mind, most horror films were not written by those who directed them. For the most part, screenwriters, as crucial as they are to making great movies, are anonymous, with unfamiliar names even in the minds of true cineasts. Horror authors, Stephen King, Clive Barker, Paul Tremblay, Neil Gaiman, Ramsey Campbell, Sarah Pinborough, and the like, are deservedly well-known in their field, but great screenwriters are rarely heralded in their work. One of the best horror films in years, in my humble opinion, is A Quiet Place. It's a true original, not a sequel, not inspired by something familiar, not part of a franchise. It was based on a powerful, unique, emotional, and terrifying script and story. John Krasinski directed the hell out of it, but it all started with the word. The writers of that original screenplay, Scott Beck and Brian Woods, are my guests today, and I'm looking forward to seeing how all that came together and what they are up to now, right after this. Fangoria Magazine is back and better than ever in a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition. Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discoveries, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible-grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Michael Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will leave your jaw on the floor, like Barbara Crampton. And the best part, it's print only, just like the old days. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. I'm really happy to announce that coming to theaters and on demand on June 21st, Nightmare Cinema brings together five masters of horror, and I say this humbly since I'm one of the filmmakers, to tell bone-chilling stories to keep your summer scary. The film critics are calling it a surreal slip down a rabbit hole to hell and gruesome fun. From the teams at Cranked Up Films and Shudder, don't miss Nightmare Cinema on June 21st. Visit crankedupfilms.com Nightmare Cinema for more information. 
Additionally, Cranked Up and Shudder are presenting An Evening of Nightmares with Alejandro Bruges, Joe Dante, and myself on June 14th at the Dynasty Typewriter in the Hayworth Theater on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. So Alejandro and Joe and I are three of the five filmmakers, along with Ryuhei Kitamura and David Slade, but we will be showing our earlier films, Alejandro's Juan of the Dead, Joe Dante's Piranha, and my very own Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. Come join us on a trip down memory lane in celebration of our upcoming film Nightmare Cinema, and I hope to see you there. If they hear you, they hurt you. Fright Rags has just unveiled their collection for A Quiet Place, featuring four brand new shirts and a red-black baseball tee. Have no fear, these shirts are super soft and guaranteed not to make any sound as you hide from the terror that lurks in the woods. Officially licensed and only available at FrightRags.com. That's Fright-Rags.com now. So... Everything you guys have done has been as a team. Is that right? Mm -hmm. How did that team begin in Iowa, of all places? Yeah, yeah, back in Iowa. So Brian and I, we've known each other since we were 11 years old, just meeting at Bettendorf Middle School in Bettendorf, Iowa. And very quickly, sitting at the same lunch table, we discovered we were both making stop-motion movies with our action figures. And uh, immediately, we were like, let's combine our action figure collection and see what we can come up yeah, with. It wasn't hard to find each other because it was definitely not socially acceptable to still be playing with toys at that <laughs> age. But in, in many ways, that's what movie making is, you know? So we grew up with, with our love of Star Wars toys and, and making movies. And, you know, the, our first collaboration in middle school was this terrible uh, short film called The Sleepover, which was a which is a horror film about a group of kids who have a sleepover and aliens show up and and um, wreak havoc. <laughs> right. So you've always been drawn to the outre, to to the fantastical. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think part of that was growing up, you know, what we consider Iowa, it's beautiful, but it is kind of the middle of nowhere, quintessential middle of nowhere. And our imaginations were driven to the extraordinary and figuring out how does that fit into the ordinary, which is where the, the perfect blend in terms of our tastes come together about just figuring out how do you make your backyard something incredible. So how did the writing start? Did you start writing before you guys met or uh, was it when you met and started collaborating totally. on these stop motion I mean, action figure movies? Yeah, we had been writing. I mean, I think we both had been writing when we were in elementary school separately and just doing short stories stories and plays and never really having a place to put that. And then as soon as you put a video camera in our hands, we realized like cinema is uh, kind of the, our, it's just our native voice, like speaking in screenplay terms made more sense to us than writing novels or, or um, more like narrative kind of fiction prose. And it's just where our hearts were. Yeah. And there, there was this discovery for me, I know personally early on um, in third grade, I wrote this, this play called the gang. And it was about, it was like me being a eight or nine-year-old picking up on newspaper articles about there's heavy gang activity in the area. Like, how do you turn that into a piece? And when you're uh, in third grade. Exactly, yeah. And so it wasn't very, you know, deep or anything, but it provoked a response from the teacher being like, I don't know that this, this is appropriate, but I could tell, like, it got the class really engaged. And that was one of those early memories where I'm like, oh, 
when you write something down, you can actually provoke a response. It's not just a passive activity. And that's what I think later figuring out what cinema can really do that really engaged me at a different level. Well, a physical response you're talking about provoking yeah. is most found in the horror genre and in the comedy genre. Yeah. Is that what drew you specifically to this or were your interests broader than that? Um, I mean, in terms of like film taste, both Brian and I are all across the gamut, but Growing up together, we would love going to the theaters on like Friday nights, especially yeah. for horror movies. And we would turn up not just to enjoy the film, but to enjoy the communal experience and actually hear that physical reaction. And so you were there the, for the audience. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And going to the same movies over and over and over again and sitting in different parts of the theater so that you could watch the audience reaction like that to us is the fun of making movies really is that communal experience watching, um, you know, it, whether it's Paranormal Activity or M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense or whatever it was when we were growing up, just seeing um, certain filmmakers being able to, you know, of course, play the audience like a piano and really get the screams and the laughs and the, you know, and, and just learning from that, but also just enjoying the experiences as moviegoers. So what were the things that you read when you were kids? Did you read Fangoria magazine and Starlog and those things yeah. and, and, and learn about the filmmaking process? Or did you discover the movies first and that created your curiosity about it. I mean, I remember personally going to the library in elementary school and seeing, like, they had these um, Universal Monster books, you know, oh, yeah. and you just flipping through and, like, Frankenstein and Wolfman and learning about those characters was, like, probably my first exposure to that. And then, of course, eventually, like, Stephen King and, like, not even being old enough for Stephen King but like knowing like my older brother was reading it and you know it's the scariest book ever it's the scariest book of all time and like kind of like sneaking that copy and like reading a few pages and getting too scared like that was my kind mm -hmm. of introduction to those films and I, I think for me I remember like there was a class project where you had to pick a profession and be somebody from that profession I picked film and I was Steven Spielberg because Jurassic <laughs> Park had just come out and that's where I really discovered the power of um, of a filmmaker and that they had, like for Spielberg and any other filmmaker of that ilk, you have a huge filmography. And I never really connected that up until that point that, oh, you know, he also made E.T. and he made Duel and Empire of the Sun. And, and there's all a, a voice that went through this work. Exactly. And so that, I think, from an early age engaged me into the idea of what a filmmaker can, can really be. And they can tell stories in many different facets. Yeah. It, that You just reminded me of being a kid and going to Universal Studios in Florida, the mm -hmm. Universal uh, theme park. And they had this at the time, uh, this like Hitchcock thing. And it was like, a, I don't even remember specifically what it was, but I just remember being a kid and the, the walls of this particular room or area at Universal Studios was covered with his posters. And I just mm. like remember asking my parents, like, what, like, what is this? Like the same like creative kind of author um, presided over all these amazing things. And each poster was so flashy and provocative they all seem to have a, a great hook or a story that i wanted to to digest and and that was also an early kind of indicator of of where our tastes lie so an indication that a filmmaker could be an author as well as a novelist could be an oh author. absolutely mm -hmm. absolutely so yeah and of course universal studios florida speaking of hitchcock that's where we shot psycho four. Oh, is yeah. that right <laughs> so. which uh we loved as a kid. oh my gosh that was my favorite sequel as a kid i absolutely loved it it yeah, was, it was so much fun shooting because we were 
the first movie to shoot at the studio there when it opened up to the public oh, as a really? theme park. But, <laughs> but um, what was, Scott, what was the first movie for you that got you excited, that made you think about the idea that, gee, maybe that's something I'd like to do? Um, I would say it wasn't just one movie. It, it actually was many different sequences from many movies. And it was... Um, I credit my my uncle Dwayne. Um, I would visit my grandpa and my uncle on the weekends, like once every month. And my uncle did this thing where he would um, combine the scariest scenes from the scariest movies of like the nineteen oh, eighties wow. together. And so, um, for instance, the chestburster scene from Alien. Like mm-hmm. he just pulled out that section for me to watch, and then he'd show <laughs> me like the the sequence in RoboCop where the guy gets dipped in acid and then gets hit by the cop car. And those moments scarred me, but in the best way possible. Where it just created these images in my head where I'm like, oh, what else can I think of in my ordinary life in Iowa to put that on screen? And so those, I think those were the movies that gave me the the taste of cinema very, very early on. Now, were you, uh, do you have siblings? Were you the only one drawn to that? I have, I have an older sister who's like three years older and she loved, you know, turning on our VHS camcorder and doing, uh, for her it was musicals. And so I participate uh. in that very early on, <laughs> but I would put like a Scott Beck film on the front of it because she was totally fine giving me that, that filmmaker credit. <laughs> um, but that, that started like our, our early collaboration. My sister and I started kind of that germ of an idea that then, you know, led to Brian and I working together a few years later. And Brian, what about you? What was it that opened that door for you? I think for me, it was probably Hitchcock psycho and, really? and seeing it at a young age and, but seeing it before the ending had been ruined for me, uh, almost like uh, seeing yes. it with fresh eyes as a young kid and and how mind-blowing it was and also the black and white which um is such a it's kind of a, it's an aesthetic choice really if he it may, for me it's the, the movie scarier because of it and i you know i would love to be able to to make a horror film in black and white there's something mm-hmm. just very um very otherworldly about about the the film but anyways the beautiful brilliant film and and really had a huge impact what was it for you uh, well, Psycho was the first film-going experience. I saw it in in my parents' um, station wagon, 57 really? no Chevy way. station wagon, with my two brothers and my sister, yeah. uh, one wow. of whom was older, two were younger. Yeah. And we, I had never gone to see a horror movie in a theater before. Yeah. And so my parents and then four kids in the back of a 57 Chevy wagon, you know, <laughs> it was quite an experience. Uh, and nobody ever guessed that 30 years later I would be making a yeah. sequel to it. But it, it stamped my black little heart from the beginning. Could you hear the screams from the other cars? <laughs> uh, I think the ones in our car yeah. <laughs> kind of Definitely. superseded those. Yeah. Yeah. But, it was, but I was the only one in the family drawn to that. Mm. But, but I was from a television generation mm-hmm. where you'd see them... On TV, if you were lucky, you'd mark them in TV Guide Mm. because there was no video and there was no access. You either saw them in the theater or you lucked out and saw it when it would run on television. Mm -hmm. You guys are of a video generation where you had access to everything at your fingertips. So tell me how that played a part in your growth as first movie lovers and then Mm -hmm. movie makers. 
Well, it was everything. It was everything because when DVDs hit at such a kind of crucial age for us, because we were in middle school and in high school making micro budget, like no, basically no budget feature films and doing our best. That was kind of our film school was just learning it. And we would watch um, special features and commentaries and uh, making of documentaries whenever we could. I mean, sometimes almost enjoy watching that more than the movies we were watching um, because it was such a an amazing window into how films were made, which were so, um, two kids living in Iowa was kind of like, it was a magic trick. We were like, how, how do you know, how does, I remember thinking too, like, like watching psycho watching, um, the exorcist and, and wondering how do you scare an audience? It just, it truly seemed like, um, it's truly seemed like magic. Like it's something that you could not do or create. It just, you had to only certain people could do that and they were magicians and, and we were not. So, um, so being able to have that curtain peeled back a little bit was, was really informative. Well, but like I, uh, Robert Rodriguez uh, was famous for doing his 10 minute film school yeah. on, on his videos and things like that. But, but Scott, w- what were you about to say? Oh, I was just going to say like the other thing about coming up in the era of like blockbusters and VHS rental stores was you would go there with the intent to rent a certain movie and that would not be in stock. And so now right. you're there, but you have to get something. And so you're kind of just judging books by their covers, judging movies right, by yeah. their covers, and trying to figure out what speaks to you. And you, oftentimes you would discover a movie that you never would have picked off the shelf. And so it was a very nice window, whereas like now you literally have everything at your fingertips that you just right. zero in on what you want, or you, you scroll through Netflix for an hour and then you call it quits. And you stream yeah. it from, from your home, including exactly. special features and the like, which <laughs> right. you, yeah. you, you just have access to a panel of film schools before you, you yeah, know, and, yeah, and filmmakers that you have access to. Yeah. Um, so being of that generation, you're also of a generation that grew up having the tools to make home movies for mm-hmm. virtually no money. Yeah. You know, if you had a VHS camcorder or if you had a computer, whatever, you could make this, these things. So did it seem like something attainable to you at this point where you actually had these tools to go, wow, I'm in Iowa, but I can make mm-hmm. these movies. Yeah, kind of. But I mean, it was like, how come our movies look like crap compared to everything? <laughs> you know, I was like, why is it like, oh, why is this VHS? Like, it's so ugly. Like, if we, we didn't know like the it. idea of 24 frames per second at that point, <laughs> right. like how film was different from video. So yeah, that was like, there was a ceiling that we felt like we kept kept hitting. But at the same time, we just enjoyed telling these stories with video cameras. And we had, you know, digital digital cameras came around like right when we were in middle school and high school. And that technology, we were able to just put that on a computer and start editing. So it it absolutely was kind of the, the floodgates could open for us to really start experimenting with you know, shot lengths, cuts, how does that affect your directing style when you're actually putting these sequences together? And, um, and our style very much was, uh, you know, storyboarding ahead of time and trying to tell exactly what that story is with that frame. And so trying to learn all the things together with this technology, like we feel very fortunate to have grown up in that era for sure. So Brian, who were your gods? Who were the people you looked up to that you either wanted to emulate or mm. felt you learned a lot from? Mm. Who, who inspired you? Yeah, well, you know, one of our favorite filmmakers at the time was M. Night Shyamalan. Like we, like seeing The Sixth Sense while we were in middle school was kind of a profound moment because it was such a, I don't know, I guess I, I went into that movie with such a kind of arrogant attitude like what is this movie like Bruce Willis like I, I for some reason I had no expectations didn't know what right. I was about to see and in, in the uh the ending is so 
um, you know, so smart and it just really, it really just slaps you across the face with its brilliance. And, and, and it was just such a beautiful wake up call. And I've really enjoyed watching Shyamalan's career as he's progressed because Mm -hmm. he takes, um, really big swings with original ideas. Um, and, you know, kind of generating fresh things that are non-IP, like Unbreakable, which is one of our favorite movies of all time. And, you know, this kind of brilliant, realistic superhero film before superhero films were the biggest thing and only thing that were that were made. <laughs> right. um, so that had a huge influence, uh, you know, but, you know, you name it, like Carpenter, Kubrick, Garris, if I may. <laughs> yeah, right, uh, right. No, truly. Don't I mean, kiss my ass. Yeah. <laughs> truly, like we are, we are students of of the genre and, and of film, and and really, you know, come to you know respect and, and love uh, many many different mm-hmm. people. Scott, do you come from the hero. same place? So you have the same heroes? Yeah, I mean, absolutely the same heroes. And I would say, like that that year of 1999, like just hit us at a perfect time where we year. were turning on to cinema and like a totally different different level. Stir and of so, Echoes is another great yeah, one absolutely, from great, that great movie. absolutely just blows me away. Yeah. Like that that entire year had so much to offer. Magnolia, um, Magnolia Fight, Club, Fight Club, The Insider, American Beauty. Um, and so like Paul Thomas Anderson, I think at that time was doing techniques that, um, even though it echoed, you know, Robert Altman and such, I hadn't seen Mm. Robert Altman movies at the time. So I'm like, Oh, what is he doing? These like incredible, like cacophonies of character stories. And that really kind of turned the lights on into what cinema could be. And of course that led down a road where as filmmakers, we tried emulating that, even Mm -hmm. though we quickly realized that's not really our forte. Like we're, we're not those guys that can tell those stories. We're not Martin Scorsese apparently, but yeah, yeah, we tried. But it it kind (laughs) of folded back. It folded back into like our very early love of the genre. And I think that was kind of the discovery we had to have. And being able to watch contemporary filmmakers and then going back in time and figuring out who they were riffing on. So like, like taking Paul Thomas Anderson, for example, like you can go back to Robert Altman, you can go back to Truffaut and on and on and mm-hmm. on and on. And tracing that lineage is really fun for us. And we, you know, that was something that we started doing in, in definitely in middle school and high school. So who are the historical filmmakers mm-hmm. rather than the people you grew up with, but maybe as you studied more film, particularly yeah. genre film, which you obviously are students of, who were those peoples that kind of, uh, uh, people peoples yeah that that uh, excited you and made movies. i mean obviously there's the universal monster movie yeah so now yep. you've made one <laughs> um, absolutely yeah. i mean i think uh one thing i feel really blessed by that same uncle that showed me those those terrifying uncle scenes Dwayne. uncle Dwayne. <laughs> yeah. he um he would constantly give me vhs tapes of all these like old school horror movies i mean like for instance he gave me Coppola's Dimension 13 before I had even seen like The Godfather. Uh, and that's a great one. Dementia 13. Absolutely. Yeah. And then um, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Like that was one of those VHS tapes he gave me. And so that's one of those movies I didn't really watch when I was a kid. But then I would go back further and further into the lineage and just discover these and be like, even though as a kid, I might have written them off because we're in the 90s and 1950s movies seem so archaic. I realized, no, these are as effective as anything that I'm watching right now. And that was really an incredible eye-opening time. So, Brian, for you? Yeah, I mean, like, off the top of my head, because you could fill a book with um, our heroes. But, you know, off the top, like, so, like, retro, like, Franchot Truffaut, huge influence. Um, French filmmakers, like Jacques Tati, one wow. of our favorite filmmakers wow. um, of all time. Jacques Tati, who did these kind of 
almost elevated, uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin films that were extremely visual. Um, not a lot of story, not a lot of dialogue, um, but just gorgeous. Almost no dialogue. Almost no dialogue. Yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which later became an influence uh, on A Quiet Place. Ah, um, interesting. But, uh, you know, I mean, who else? Um, older filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, like, like, you think, like, going back really to the silent era, like yeah, F.W. Murnau, yeah. like, like, German expressionism, just in terms of the style and the atmosphere that they could craft in films like that. Billy like, Wilder, huge influence. Billy Wilder, yeah. Frank Capra. Yeah. Sorry to get out of the yeah. horror. Wilder may be yeah. my favorite of all. Well, oh, yeah. Sturgis, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Done. Originals. Yeah, absolutely. People who original. How do you guys see yourselves fully as a team? Everything you've produced so far has been the product of the two of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, can Do you feel like that's the right fit? Absolutely. Yeah. We, we, you know, we share a life experience because we grew up together and we were best friends before we were collaborators. Um, what so, a great experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A great way to experience the whole progress and evolution yeah. of your professional lives. Yeah. And it's obviously like, you know, there's filmmaking is such a tough career that there's so many high highs and low lows that it's really nice to have. Mostly not just low like a, lows. Yeah. Not just the <laughs> business partner, but somebody else to go through all those failures, but also encourage each other throughout all those failures to hopefully like be able to move on and then just stick around. <laughs> it's like to be in a two man band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so what is the process like for you? I mean, do you both write equally? Do you walk around the room and one of you types and one of you talks? And uh, do you do 20 pages and then you do 20 pages and then put them together? Mm-hmm. What's the process? Yeah, yeah it's you? really just um, like I, I would write a whole sequence and then pass that to Brian. And maybe it's five pages, maybe it's 20 pages, maybe it's even 40 pages. And then Brian will, will riff off of that and send it back and back and forth all the time. But like before that even can happen, we need to really come up with an idea. So like come up with the bare bones for a quiet place. And then we're just sitting in a room riffing on it, maybe thinking about it for weeks and weeks at a time. And we circle back and really just try to have this healthy competition where we try to one up each other's ideas, but in a way, totally devoid of ego. Right. And that's something we learned very early on in this collaboration is that um, we are so much better together than we are by ourselves. Right. And so for us, like the, this partnership has, has no end in sight. So it's like taking turns mm-hmm. when you're actually constructing a script. You yeah. Know, you'll take turns writing pages and then yeah. each of you, it's like coaching each other in a way to, to reach higher and higher. Yeah. yeah. And if, and if we do our jobs right, we don't know who wrote what, <laughs> you know, like yeah. if we do Excellent. our jobs right, we have, you know, you've removed the ego from the process and it all kind of feels like one voice. And, and, and like and Scott said, you know, just trying to challenge each other, push each other. Film is so collaborative anyways. It kind of makes sense to have a partnership we feel, but, um, Sure. But yeah, it's, we love it. Well, speaking of ego, you guys had already directed a couple of feature films as mm-hmm. well before A Quiet Place. Mm-hmm. So everything you'd done as writers and as directors were together. And so A Quiet Place is the first time where you're not directing mm-hmm. your script. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. before we dig too deeply into A Quiet Place getting made, what was the process like, the the slow graduation to a major studio movie, mm-hmm. a very successful studio movie, yeah. having done your own personal independent film? Um, I mean, it really was a lot of failure, but always like that whole thing of like failing upwards. Um, because we, we were doing, you know, films on shoestring budgets, like literally hundreds of dollars. And then there was this opportunity to do, um, a a pilot presentation with MTV film 
films with this um, this great guy we consider a mentor, um, David Gale. He used to. Well, head you up won on an TV award films. or something from yeah. MTV, right? For yeah. student filmmaking. And it, yeah. like the award was, um, they called it a development deal to develop a feature film. And at the time, you know, we're twenty years award. old. We thought <laughs> yeah, like, well, oh, that's like, incredible. And we then made it. <laughs> quickly we realized like, oh, maybe the executives on the other side don't really see it that way. They're just like, oh, it's just a couple kids from Iowa. Like, hand them a little bit of money and, and we'll call it a day. And we're like, no, we want to turn this into like the first benchmark in our career. And it took a lot of years and a lot of finagling to finally get to David Gale, who actually finally sat down and listened to us. And it's like, give me an idea that you believe in and I will give you a little bit of money to go off and, and do a pilot. And that was this pilot called Spread, um, which we we took back to Iowa. We shot for like, I don't know, 10 grand or something. And that became our first real, what we consider our first real directing sample that was able to get our first like Well, that was your first feature. job. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You were paid yeah, to do totally. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. And paid, paid pennies, but you know, it, <laughs> yeah. but you, you we could call up our parents and say, "Hey, we made it." You know, like we're <laughs> we are filmmakers. Yeah. And we're yeah. not the only ones who think so. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so we used the pilot of Spread. It never got picked up and never got put on the air, but we were able to kind of use it as a directing sample and and leverage um, our subsequent feature, which was this uh, little indie film called Nightlight, which mm-hmm. but felt bigger to us because it was you know a couple million dollar budget and a um, couple million dollars for a first independent feature is pretty mm-hmm. great we were yeah. very very lucky and very excited to do it and we got to do it with really amazing partners it was a horror film but we got a partner with michael london at groundswell productions he produced sideways and all these amazing right, character dramas and stuff. we thought that would be a beautiful kind of bizarre unique collaboration and um and yeah and anyways and so that kind of that that allowed us to kind of plant the flag and then many many failures later <laughs> we were lucky enough to to write a quiet place well did nightlife lead to nightlight lead to being represented getting an agent um it did did that happen yeah when we had sold the script for nightlight that's when finally like agents were interested and so we we were able to sign off of that but really like in the wake of nightlight in in our estimation it never really moved the needle for for many many reasons Mm. that we don't need to get into here but um (laughs) it it was one of those cases where we were then just chasing job assignments because there was never a big thing that that came in the wake of that. And and some some job assignments we would get like we you know got attached to direct some big studio movies that just fell apart because we couldn't get the right cast member or whatever that we would right. develop for years or we would you chase need box office attention. Yeah. Totally, yeah. And it it became this frustration where we were like we're chasing a lot of things and there was literally like one one solid year like 2014 or 2015 where we look back at the last 365 days and we're like we all we can show for ourselves are pitch pages and nothing mm-hmm. substantial and we really drill down on ourselves we're like we have to go back to writing but not just writing something for the sake of writing but something that we're passionate about and if we only had $50,000 we could go off and make that movie back in Iowa and that essentially was a quiet place so that was the purpose was to get a movie you believe in to mm-hmm. do it. So tell me who was the first one to express interest and want to make this? Uh, the answer is nobody wanted to make <laughs> okay. a quiet place. We would, we would pitch the idea. Scott and I came up with the idea. It was kind of a marriage of like our love of silent film, our love of Chaplin and Jacques Tati and, and marrying that with Jaws or Alien. 
um, and, and trying to do a modern day silent film in the horror context. And we would pitch it to producers and studio executives at lunch. And who didn't you know, know who Jacques Tati was. True. Yeah, exactly. That might've yeah. been part of the problem, <laughs> but you know, we would pitch this idea about like monster, the family on a farm, the monster, your aliens. And if they hear a noise, they kill you. And it was really weird because we believed in it, but everybody's eyes glazed over. Nobody literally we had, close close producer friends who were just like it's just a gimmick guys like this is there's no story like i don't see it i don't mm. think you should waste your time and we're very sensitive writers so <laughs> we're like oh they're right it's stupid it's kind of you know it's not a good idea so we kept putting the concept back in a drawer um and it wasn't until um you know a, f- a few years we had been marinating on the idea and we got to that frustrating place in our career that we just talked about and we were finally like let's just write it like we believe in it like we see why it's cool um, and even if nobody else does, like, we'll be proud that we have um, put it on paper. And the intent was for you to direct it yourself. The intent, yeah. yeah. The yeah. intent was by hell or high water, this will be a movie. Whether you know whether it's a big studio movie and somebody gets to make it, or nobody, everyone says you're crazy. This is stupid. We'll just you know go back to Iowa and make it. Yeah. And, and what, what we didn't realize is we we finished the script and we we got it to our our agent and manager and they they really loved it and they're like this is the first person we think we should bring it to as a producer. And that person was the loudest filmmaker in Hollywood, which was Michael Bay <laughs> yes. and his production company, Platinum Dunes. And we were like, are you sure? It's such a Known quiet... Known for remaking a lot of <laughs> yeah, it's true. Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. You're absolutely so right. So we, we right. had our Spidey sense up, but when we sat down with his producers, Brad and Drew, they really understood the emotional through line of A Quiet Place, which is about this broken family that's trying to trying to make amends while everything is going around, around which them. Which is what makes it special, is the emotional core. I mean, yeah. it's a brilliant idea, and it's an original idea, but it's also emotionally complex and painful. And I think that probably makes it a studio film. Oh, yeah, well, thank, thank, thank you, you for, for saying that. that. Um, and that's what that's what we were hoping. And so we just wanted to make sure we were partnering with people that would protect that at all right. costs. And we felt that okay, Michael Bay and and his his guys totally understand that. And they had this deal with Paramount. They took it into Paramount. And of course, that's when you're worried, like, oh, it's going to a big studio. Like, what's it going to turn into there? And very quickly, like, we we sold the script to them. No other attachments to it. Um, and they sat down with us about, like, the rewrites. And it was this incredible, um, and this may never happen again, where they sat down and they're like, we have a few notes, but it's not about adding tons of dialogue to it. It's not about changing it into like this huge end of the end of the world canvas. And for us, that felt like a very special partnership that, right. that we relief. saw, saw through to the a end. Huge so, relief. Yeah. yeah huge where they saw relief. it the way you saw yeah, it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. So did you know at the time that you were just selling them the script or were you still intent on selling yourselves as part of that package. Totally. Yeah, there was there was a um we actually were originally directing it. Um what happened though was this this fascinating confluence of events where um as soon as like it was set up at Paramount, John Krasinski had been working with Brad and Drew at Platinum Dunes on the Jack Ryan TV show. Uh-huh. And John had read the script, fell in love with it he passed we we were told this all by our by our agents at first and they were like yeah john passed it to emily blunt uh, and she loves it and she His wants wife. to star in it yeah. Yeah, which we, we did not know at the time <laughs> oh, so we were like okay. were they just hanging out over like pizza and they were reading the <laughs> script together we were very confused <laughs> and um so this package uh that was undeniable came back where it's like now you have emily you have john and john 
and Emily had just had their second child three weeks before they had read the script. So it connected to a very, very visceral place in their own hearts. And so John was like, look, I really would love to direct this too. And so it was one of those like really hard decisions to hand off your baby. But we also felt that if you were casting two people in the roles, what better than these two incredible actors and also husband and wife and it, right. cherry on the top was paramount was like, okay, now it's coming out April, 2018. We have a firm re- release right. date. So. And they're going to give a green light to yeah. the experienced yeah. director. Who's also the yeah. movie star and yeah. all of that. Yeah, and absolutely. again, it was like very important to make sure everybody understood the core heart of the, of the script and everybody did. And so yeah. that was very easy to kind of, you know, bring that team together. So Brian, was it tough to give up the directorship of it? I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it was, like, certainly, like, (laughs) you had to, like, it was some long, sleepless nights of, like, is, what's the best play for this? And it was a lot of conversation. It was a lot of talking about, like, when we first went in to meet with our producers, Platinum Dunes, and they asked us, like, who do you want to cast? You know, the first thing we said was, well, Emily Blunt, but we'll never get her. So uh, who's not, you know, who who else is on the list? And, And then all of a sudden, you know, you have John and Emily coming to the table who, are you know the perfect cast for this film and john who had directed two smaller indie features that were dramas but they were really heartfelt and really um you know special movies and we thought that that could be an interesting combination of course you don't know like can john krasinski you know does he have the visual chops to pull off the atmosphere it was kind of a a leap of of faith right it's um, a totally different mm -hmm. stylistic movie than anything he'd ever been attached to before Mm -hmm. either as an actor or as a director he'd been doing romantic comedy drama Mm -hmm. and was best known as the star of the office uh, an ensemble yeah so what did you feel about someone who did not have an interest in the horror genre from everything I've read that he's had to Mm -hmm. say, um, but his enthusiasm for it. I mean, it had to be kind of a a, a bit of a tight walk. Like, can he do justice to scaring the shit out of our audience? (laughs) Yeah. I I, I guess we um, we, we had those questions, but we also had a blind confidence that if you stick to the bones of the script in terms of what it brings in, ter- in terms of the horror, then the other really important thing to nail is the emotional through line. And that was one thing we knew for certain that John and Emily really had latched onto. Um, and then, you know, having other incredible collaborators come on board super early, like the, the DP Charlotta, like she had these visual chops that we knew would kind of bring everything to the screen, like the red lights, like that was a very important visual in the script yeah. and brought it beautifully to the screen. Um, and the sound designers too, uh, mm-hmm. Eric and Ethan and the sound mixer Brandon, they were brought on, you know, in pre-production. And we knew that that was going to be the key storytelling device. And as long as you had somebody who had done some of the best sounding movies in the last, you know, two decades, then we're, we're going to be in good hands. By the way, I would, faith. I would add to that. Like John as an actor had worked with some of our favorite filmmakers of all time. Like he had worked with Cameron Crowe, certainly worked with Michael Bay. Cameron yeah. and I both wrote for the San Diego door at the same time when he was 15 and I was, 17. I was, I wondered that because <laughs> yeah. it, it felt like your story echoed his story, like almost famous story to a T. We were so. both in San Diego writing for that <laughs> underground incredible. paper and stuff. So Cameron wow. is just, and it's so great to see what's happened to him. Oh, that's yeah. So amazing. 
amazing. Yeah, anyway, so, I so no, to that's talk about myself. But any, so. please, but like <laughs> please John, interrupt John me. had uh, played a, a silent character in um, Cameron Crowe's Aloha, and so there was like a superficial degree where like he's picking up from all the right filmmakers, and he's even literally done this in one of his role. And and again, like I think that's one thing that actors have the benefit that other directors don't always have is you get to be on so many different film sets and get exactly. to learn so many different styles and techniques that you start imbuing that into, into your own performance. It's really incredible learning process for us as well, being able to see what John did with the script and, and see it come to life through somebody else's eyes and, and think about the ways that it overlaps and it's similar to what we saw in our heads. Think about the ways that it was different. It's been like such a, bizarrely amazing experience for us. Although yes, during the, that there was like a two week period where we're like, we don't know. I don't know if this is a good decision, <laughs> but we haven't regretted it since. Well, I know that he really took it to heart to learn about how horror movies are constructed and generating mm -hmm. fear and tension. Were you instrumental in that? Did you guys help teach and guide him <laughs> with some of your favorites and make recommendations. I can't, I can't say we can take credit for that. I guess what I would hope is that the script had enough of the influences, whether, you know, that, that is Hitchcock, um, whether it's, you know, early Spielberg, like just really channeling, um, what, keeps us up at night in terms mm -hmm. of what what's horrifying um but yeah we can't take credit for like giving him a list of not at things. all but <laughs> as horror fans we are happy that he has come over to the dark side <laughs> and, it, and it's always funny to us too yeah. like like someone like john who um hadn't experienced a lot of horror um it's always funny when you hear them like wow these are really good movies it's like of course they are <laughs> That's they, the point. they they yeah. they speak you know whether it's invasion of the bystanders night of the living dead i mean yeah. on and on and on like these films have um been you know, really powerful kind of social commentaries for a very long time. And that's what we talk about in this show a lot is how the horror is thought of as a ghetto. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it, it is the disrespected genre mm. that it's disreputable because it's not nice. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't play nice. And so people don't want to be reminded of the uglier parts of life. And yet that is so much a part of everyday life and how we, how we run our lives to avoid our fears and how mm -hmm. we suppress those fears until they explode and reverse upon us in the like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I think, um, you know, what horror has such a strength that some people don't admit is, we do need to see the ugly parts of life sometimes in order to embrace kind of the, the reality of what we exist in. And I, I don't think people accept that in themselves, even though they're happy to look at car crashes while they're traveling down the freeway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's respectable. Yeah. <laughs> so what scared the shit out of you, Brian? <laughs> in life? Well, in life <laughs> or in movies. I mean, yeah. what's, a, what's a movie that particularly yeah. uh, twisted you around? Like, Holy <laughs> mm. shit. That affected you personally. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Blair Witch uh, really, I mean, I stopped camping. Really? <laughs> I stopped camping because of Blair Witch. And the, the magic of Blair Witch is how simple it is and how... Uh, and how it's not, um, it's not spectacle. It's just, right. it's all what you conjure up in your mind. It uses the audience's imagination against them. And as a, as a middle schooler, I had a wild imagination. So like imagining what's around the corner, what's in the house, imagining everything that they don't show you in the film um, played tricks on me and really, <laughs> really messed me up. And for you, Scott? 
Um, I would say the birds from the standpoint oh. that it was one of those movies I saw that felt like the first disaster movie, mm-hmm. um, but in a way that felt immediate where you could walk outside your house after seeing that movie and look at birds a totally different way yeah. and not feel safe by that. But also what, what I absolutely adored about that movie that really, really provoked me was that whole scene in the diner where they're speculating like how this happened. And it felt so very real to every single catastrophe that you ever encounter in real life, whether it's September 11th or or some other terrible thing where everybody is kind of thrown in this chaotic nature. And that mm-hmm. only breaks down the society more as everybody has their own theories and goes off and tries to salvage themselves. So that's one of those movies that certainly scarred me. How yeah. old were you when you saw it? I was probably like 10, wow. I bet, 10 or 11. Yeah. I saw that when I was in junior high school yeah. uh, in a theater at a, you know, it's a couple of years old, but yeah. I, I went by myself and saw it. And I loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved it. And I'm walking home from the theater through a field and Mm -hmm. a bare tree with no leaves or anything and suddenly three birds land in it (laughs) then five more then six more then ten and I ran home (laughs) oh my god I bet Hitchcock was behind that (laughs) (laughs) no doubt at least his ghost yeah so what is something that did not end up in a quiet place that that you really wished had Mm. because I guess John did a rewrite yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. on the script because he's credited with you yeah. with the and after yep. the ampersand. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so w- what did not end up in the movie that w- you wished had? Um, I would say there's, do you have a... Well, yeah, there's, there's a couple sequences. I know there's some that like probably shouldn't talk too much about in case it ends up in a, in a future quiet place movie that that Paramount's doing. But, um, there was a couple suspense sequences. Like there was one, um, involving a lake that kind of turned into the waterfall sequence where it's more about a father and son talking, but there was a version of that that took place on a lake where really it was like a suspenseful sequence where you have to get from point A to point B across the water without making a, a single yeah. sound. And the, whole, mm. the whole idea was they had this, um, this placid lake with a rope that runs from one end of the lake to the other and a little rowboat and they had to get to a water well. And so the only way to do it is to sit in the rowboat and painstakingly kind of pull yourself mm. across the lake without disrupting the water at all. So it's kind of, he, he the, what he ended up doing was inversing it. So it's like the idea is the water is loud and we can right. have a conversation here. We were going for um, something that was very still and very, it's like, how do you, how do you, how does water not make noise? And what happens if you uh, fall in and what's lurking underneath the water? So and the whole idea of course fun, is but, like the plant and payoff where you set up that scene early on and then you come back to it and all the rules have changed. So, yeah, that's one thing, you know, certainly it'd be fun to see that in a movie, whether it is a future Quiet Place movie or whether it's something else that we we do in the future. But I don't know how you feel, but like the movie, the movies always just kind of become what they become. And Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting. It's an evolutionary. It's an evolutionary. And I I would love to hear your thoughts, because like even as directors, um, when we write something and we storyboard it meticulously, we cast it the way we want, we hire the crew we want. And they sometimes still come out completely different than we ever expected. And that's for us the magic of collaboration and the magic of filmmaking yeah i love good ideas from wherever they come from mm-hmm. even if craft services yeah. has a good idea you know it's, totally. you just have to go beyond ego you guys were talking about ego earlier and it's about wherever the best idea comes from that's organic to what you want to do absolutely as, as directors you have the, the final say well the projectionist has final <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> but um uh yeah i mean i often 
will have something come up. I'd love nothing better than to be on a set and have something new and magical surprise me. Mm -hmm. An actor approach something in a way I didn't expect that makes the movie better. Who wouldn't encourage that and want that to happen? But let's reverse it a little bit. What was in the movie that surprised you that you really liked and thought, wow, I wish that had been my idea. In The right. Mist, for example, Stephen King says if he had thought of how Frank Darabont ended The Mist in a very dark way, yeah. that that's how he would have written yep. it, and he wished he had. Yeah. So was there something John did that you went, wow, yeah. that's great, I wish we'd thought of that. Yeah, I think there was um, an economy that, that he certainly brought to his vision. Um, so, for instance, at, at spoiler alerts for anyone who hasn't seen the movie yet. Um, and if you haven't, so, you're foolish. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's there's this whole crux of the family breakdown, um, which was always about there's a tragedy because they lost a child in their family. And so um, in like our early draft and, and a few of the rewrites that we did, um, that loss was actually built in a series of flashbacks that were peppered throughout. So it was much more a mystery that was unfolding where, you know, something's wrong with this family, but you don't really understand until you get closer to the end of the film. Um, and John had looked at that and he thought maybe we could make this more concise upfront and you give all of the rules within the confines of what essentially is the convenience store mm -hmm. sequence. And then, then the bridge um, with the, with the death of the child. And so it just put everything that we had kind of parceled out, more upfront and watching that with an audience like it's fun because the audience automatically gets everything they need to know and then you just continue on with kind of the roller coaster ride of the film right so, yeah so brian how did you feel when you first sat in the theater well first of all did yeah. you guys work with john or once he took over did it become entirely his process? I mean, it was it was more or less his. We were directing another film that will hopefully be coming out later this year called we'll Haunt. We'll get into that. Oh, great. Yes. So we were, th those movies were actually happening simultaneously, which again uh, is like, as filmmakers who have struggled our whole careers, it's we were very lucky, and it will yeah. never happen again. It's, it's hard to get a movie made, but uh, let alone two. But... Um, and, and also like the, the film was very incubated cause it was very much a family film four people on a farm, John and Emily and the relationship. So, um, so it was very incubated, but when we finally saw the film, it was a very expedited post process. Um, we had a release date and, and then they, wow. <laughs> then they did a disservice to themselves. They wanted to premiere at South by Southwest, which was a month before release date. So everything got crunched. And there are some pretty sophisticated visual effects that absolutely, well. absolutely. Yeah. So when we saw um, an early cut of the film, there were no VFX done, no yeah. no sound. Uh, I mean, rough sound effects, very rough. Um, like maybe twenty percent of the music had been composed, and um, we were sweating in the theater. And and we had two reactions after we saw the film. Which this was, was at South by or at a no, this no, was well this before, was like at a, a private screen. Paramount screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were our reactions were wow, John did a hell of a job and the whole team, they just did a beautiful job. But our second reaction was like, oh no, as screenwriters, like, is this movie going to make sense? Is it too big of a gamble? Like all of a sudden we started getting like really, really scared that it, it wasn't going to work. Um, and then we had the actual like big premiere at South by like, uh, like probably a week, week and a half after that cut. And everybody in the green room, cast and crew, was kind of sweating because no one had really seen the finished film, um, with let alone with an audience. And uh, the sound team had finished it maybe like 12 hours prior in New oh York, and God. they flew it down. And everybody's just on pins and needles as the lights go down. But then slowly you start hearing some of the hushed reactions, and you start seeing how the audience is 
restraining themselves and and then you know like the nail gag that was one of those where all of a sudden you get everybody just rising up in their seats when when emily steps on that nail and now that's the moment where like everybody on the on the production side of things was like okay this movie might have a chance and it might work how do you usually feel mick when you watch your films for the first time whether you are a writer or a writer director and you're seeing a rough assembly or whatever like do you is it a fun experience for you? Is it scary? Are you nervous? Are you, what are if you If it's feeling? working, it's the best experience <laughs> in the world, you know? And, yeah. and usually the experience has been, a lot of my work has been in television where you yeah. don't get the luxury of playing it to an audience, sure. especially in a mini series that's sure. eight hours yeah. long or something like that. But um, there's nothing more exciting than going to opening night for Sleepwalkers at the Chinese yeah. Theater with 1,200 yeah. people in attendance. And from the very beginning, they're with you. And it's thrilling. But the same can be said. Critters 2 was the most successful sneak preview that New Line had ever had at that time. And a total disaster. You know, (laughs) have this great preview. People are laughing and screaming and jumping. Then you go to opening day and there's three people up at Universal City Walk in the theater. And nobody went. Nobody. The reviews sucked. And it's like, this is uh, maybe I've chosen the wrong job. Can I say something about that for a second though? Because like I adored the whole critters franchise. And like when I was a kid, I would rent those all the time on VHS and the perception, at least when I'm a kid is like, these movies are like the most successful of all time because they were bigger than like Jurassic park. Like it's like, like I forget like, about gremlins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. But but honestly, like I, I'm saying that genuinely, like especially like Critters Two, where you have like you think it's the ending and like they've blown them uh, up, and then you get like the iconic Critters Ball, which which is on my t shirt I'm wearing right now. But but like those moments, um, like as a kid, you celebrate and you just celebrate for the pure love of cinema. So like in, in that respect you have your blinders on and it's, it's the best situation ever. Whereas I feel like you're an adult and you get so encumbered by like the perception of, of what success really is. Do you read reviews of your work? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think people who say they don't are not necessarily being honest. Totally. Right. But I read them with the grain of salt that if the reviews are great and you love them, then you have to also pay attention totally. to the reviews that aren't good. Because yeah. there is yeah. validity to them. Oh, you can learn from them. You can either enjoy a great review and go, yay, they understand my genius. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or you can go, you know, he's right. Uh, this would have been better if we'd done it this way or something like that. Totally. I, yeah. I, I try to make it into a positive experience. I love that. I love to hear that you do that. I mean, reading reviews is something we did as just film lovers. Like you see a movie that you like or dislike and then yeah. you like to check your opinion and see what a, what other people say. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that's easy to stop once you start making movies. Yeah. Well, and, and talking about the experience in theaters, when I saw mm-hmm. Quiet Place, um, it was in a Pack theater and it was opening weekend oh, cool. and it was the quietest I'd ever heard an audience <laughs> in my life. It was a spectacular experience. You guys had them from the get-go and you could hear a pin drop in that theater mm-hmm. and it was amazing how successful it was on its own terms mm-hmm. and it was thrilling to be a part of that and yeah. to feel that because you know I've been making genre movies and enjoying genre movies most of my life Mm -hmm. 
And still to be able to be excited by something that I see that feels new and fresh was thrilling for me. Oh, cool. And that movie did that for me. Well, thank, well, thank you. you. So that's the that, highest praise ever. Thank you. Absolutely. I mean, and that's one thing that, that what we were saying earlier, like those are the experiences that we absolutely adore to go to Friday night and see a packed cinema uh, yeah. and watch the movie together. And that was, you know, the blind ambition when we had first written Quiet Place and also was born out of frustration of just sometimes the landscape of, of what you're offered in, in cineplexes right now. Like as much as we go and see the latest, you know, sequel or whether we Mm -hmm. see the latest comic book movie, we also pine for that original voice and original storytelling. And, um, the fact that, you know, Paramount had the audacity to actually embrace this project and put it out the way that they did, um, we're, we're forever grateful for. And we, we hope that, there's more of that in the landscape, especially in the horror genre where you can actually have that visceral, you know, response from an audience. Well, tell me about the giddiness you must have felt when it became a box office success. When people were talking about it, it was the water cooler movie. <laughs> and, you know, obviously it opened doors for you. But yeah. uh, tell me the feeling, Brian. Um, it, impossible to process and a little bit surreal, but it was really fun. I think the, the, probably the, the most memorable moment of, of that whole quiet place release experience was going back to our hometown in the quad cities in, in Iowa and screening the movie with all of our friends and family who have helped us make movies for so damn long. And, um, to be able to share that with them was, uh, something we'll never forget, but yeah, I don't, in terms of the film, you know, having legs and the fact that, um, people are still talking about it a year later, kind of surreal, kind of incomprehensible. We're very hard on ourselves and, um, I don't know. We're trying to not get too swept up in it because we know that happens once and never again. And so. also the, the circumstances of the release, like we were in post-production for our other film haunt at the time. So like we would go to the screening at South by Southwest and then come back to the editing room. We we're like, right. Oh, this other movie we're working on isn't working yet. Cause we're still editing. <laughs> yeah, and then we go to like the New York premiere of quiet place and it's all great. And then we're like, Oh, now we got to go back to the edit room and, and like back into <laughs> yeah. rewrites and then working yeah. on this project. You know, you, the work keeps you humble, but we, we try, we try to view that as a good thing. Like, it's not like it's, it's a slog to go back in the editing room, but it's actually inspiring. Like it refills your tank when you see that people are responding to things that, that you've put out and you just want to, you know, pay it forward to your other projects and, and try to make it work. And the really cool thing that we learned also with a quiet place is that the most fun of that film wasn't the film being successful or getting good reviews. The most fun was actually writing it. Like the work mm-hmm. is really? the most fun yeah. part and that's yeah. what we love to do, you know? And it was good and well-reviewed mm-hmm. and successful. You yeah, rarely crazy. get that trifecta going. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's never going to happen again Pure. for us. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say never. Never say never. Yeah, it's, I think it just, um, it's one of those things like you experience so many uphill battles all the time that then you get suspicious sometimes when something <laughs> yes. hits and, and you can't figure out what the alchemy is because sometimes it is just, it's the right timing, it's the right release, it's the right collaboration, and all you can do is try to enjoy every single step of the process, I think. Exactly, you have to. And so, at the same time, you were making a smaller scale film as writers and directors, and with a very different kind of atmosphere to it. Um, And your producer was Eli Roth. Tell me how that came together. It has some similarities to Hostel um, in that regard. It's an extreme haunted house, basically, with a young cast trapped together in there. So you've got one major studio 
blockbuster happening mm -hmm. while you're finishing up as writer directors on something you probably feel even more possessory about. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the experience of, of directing while this other movie is going on in somebody else's hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it, it's one of those that uh, like the, the core idea that, um, you know, does play, takes place in a haunted house. And that struck a very personal chord to us because Brian and I growing up in Iowa, um, we would go to haunted houses all the time in October and they would, they wouldn't be like professionally produced. They'd be thrown up in an old abandoned factory and, and just the, the creepiest atmosphere possible where it's not just about people popping out and saying boo, but really it's about walking down dark corridors and that being the most And giving terrifying. yourself over to a process, uh, how vulnerable we all are when we go haunted housing is like, we started thinking about like, it's crazy. Like people sign release forms and sign away all their life right you know he's like have a heart attack exactly yeah. it is it's terrifying and we thought like that could be really creepy so yeah. it was it was amazing and then so we wrote the script and it was um i think we were commissioned to write it and then it kind of as we were working on it it became more and more of a passion project so it wasn't a spec script no that it was no. something that was developed yeah. it wasn't a, yeah to a certain degree like an assignment but it was an assignment that we felt like we had a personal window in from that experience and then of course without giving much away about the film like you want to imbue it with with certain characters and character types that are you know taken from your own backyard um and we got the script to a point that we were really happy with it and through one of our producers um todd garner he had a relationship with eli he was working with something else on with uh with eli and eli had read the script always having wanted to be a part of a, a newer like haunted house movie and he fell in love with it. And, oh, and, and when he had reached out about being a part of it as fans, you know, automatically we're like, yes. And then he's like, and I have a few notes on the script. We're like, no. <laughs> and, um, and we yet, immediately we're like, what are Eli Roth's notes going to be? Yeah. It's going to be like more eye gouges, more heads yeah. falling out. Like we didn't know, you know, like yeah. what is, what we're just yeah. like imagining what he would say. And the coolest thing was sitting down with Eli for the first time. And he's like, let's make these characters better. And like, let's just focus on making the characters lovable and like people we really care about. And like, that was such music to our ears because, um, you know, anytime a, a horror film is successful, it's, it's always because you care about what's happening to them. So, exactly. so we, we took that to heart and he, Eli is such a pleasure to work with. I mean, mm -hmm. talk about somebody who, loves film, loves genre, um, you know, even more so than his writing and directing work, which is stellar. It's like, he's a great ambassador for the genre mm -hmm. and he gets people, he's just, it's infectious. He gets everybody around him excited. And, um, com it was honestly like a bucket list, uh, item for us to be able mm -hmm. to work with him. So when can we expect to see Haunt? Uh, so it should be coming out this October, finalizing things in terms of the distribution plans. Awesome. But, you know, it's a Halloween movie, so it's, yeah. it's got to come out in the month of October. That sounds yeah. great. Now, one last thing I want to talk about mm -hmm. is how you feel about creating what has become a franchise. They're mm -hmm. making uh -huh. A Quiet Place 2 now. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's a funny place to be because obviously, as we were saying, like the whole idea of Quiet Place was born out of not doing something that's part of a franchise, not doing something that's based on IP. So it's it's ironic to a certain degree, yet we're also excited to the point that it is a world that we feel is incredibly rich. So there's a lot of different avenues you can go down that hopefully aren't repeating the same story time and time again. Um, but it's, I, yeah, it is a weird feeling to have that based on a reaction of 
when we wrote it. In yeah, the first place. and and our feeling is too like just as important. Like it's it's we're grateful that people want to see more a quiet place, but like our feeling is what's the next weird crazy mm-hmm. silly idea that everyone thinks is not a good idea for a movie like what's that idea like that we can get right. made now so, so that's we're, we're that's become kind that. of our, our main like the launching point for quiet place is really to to go off and see what else can we do that's completely crazy and disruptive and again maybe we'll fall on our face with that but at least we will have tried <laughs> and whose idea was it for them to get pregnant <laughs> <laughs> yeah that mm. was i mean between yeah. us like I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's one of those that honestly I can't put a pin in. I, yeah, I don't know. I had to ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, Scott, Brian, it was really great to have you here. Thanks and really good luck and congratulations on launching the career with such a fantastic film. Oh, thank Our you pleasure, so much, Mick. This was you. great. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.